Do you see Swiper the Fox? Where? Right behind us? Swiper, no! Hey! You're too late! <laughs> Whoa! You'll never find your backpack now! And welcome back to the Furidashi Podcast. I, I as always, raised my arms at the beginning. You guys can't see this. I do this thing where I do the intro and I raise my arms. It's because we're having a party every time we talk about <laughs> this type of stuff, honestly. You, you just heard Lauren. Lauren is here, too. Say hi to the fine people. Hello to the fine people. <laughs> I am having a party. I don't raise my arms because I am not as awake as Nicholas at this hour, but I'm yeah, every there. Every day in Lauren's tiny San Francisco cube is, in fact, a party. <laughs> I mean, honestly, when I play my like, um, like if I play Icon or I play like another like Korean, oh man, I should plug Stray Kids here now that I'm saying this all out loud. I might, as well. might as well. But uh, yeah, if I'm playing that music while I'm working, like it is literally a party in my apartment that no one can hear because thankfully, because the apartment is very soundproof. Yeah. So. Yeah, I've been listening to so for those of you who have not listened to the new um, Florence and the Machine album, it is absolutely amazing. Um, I am not being paid by Florence Welch to to promote her. And I am definitely not being paid by JYP. <laughs> so, so you. But hey, either. <laughs> you can take our opinions as sacrosanct. You can bank on them. Um, but that's not what we're talking. We're not going to be talking about um, awesome music today. Although maybe at some point we should. We should talk about game music at some point. Let's add it to the list. Um, but today we're actually going to be following on a conversation that we had in the previous free episode when we talked about Loop Hero and sort of our ongoing reconfiguration or sort of reconceptualization of what gameplay loops are and like how you as developers and designers and just people who are interested in like game design can think about them. Um, and we ended on the point in that episode about how Okay, so we we kind of constructed this dichotomy between sort of like action-adventure-oriented games and games that are more about sort of like totalizing control. Um, we then had a, a Patreon episode about 4X games, which sort of like epitomized this concept of like the global control, game as global control rather than game as like individualized personal narrative. And so when Lauren and I were talking earlier, we... I actually reconceptualize this as games that are so you could broadly understand as adventure-based versus games that are broadly understood to be about sort of management, I guess you could say is the difference. And that's why in that previous free episode, we kind of almost accidentally got on the topic of emergent narrative. Because one of the things that we realized is that like once you push the sort of like the adventure aspects out of the way one of the things that that does is that opens up space for players to use the game kind of as a tool set to create narratives for themselves that emerge 
out of their gameplay, out of using sort of the tools that the game provides. Yeah, and this actually led me into kind of discussing with Nicholas beforehand to try to not only like identify what exactly do we mean by an adventure game, which yep. I think a lot of you are probably going, Lauren, like we know what adventure games are. No, and don't. my answer always is, yeah, <laughs> do you? Do you though? Do you really? <laughs> do you? Um, but I really wanted to kind of dig into like what is adventure, right? What is action? Right. And yeah. then also we are talking about what is management. And I think for me, just as the game designer philosophy, right, I think I want to step back from what I already have, right, as an unconscious bias for what these terms mean. And I actually want to go all the way back to, right, Nicholas, tell us, where does the word adventure come from? Well, um, I'm, I'm going to go with like one. Okay, so there's a problem. I should note as a, you know, as a literary scholar, there's always a caveat when you're talking about etymologies because words get used in different ways in different time periods. And etymology is never like a straight line. It has various like sort of branches that feed into each other. Right, but, right. For the purposes of our discussion. Yeah. One of the most important of those branches, though, is something that emerged in the early history of colonialism, specifically Anglo-colonialism. And so when the peoples of the, the Great Britain decided that they were going to try and exploit the resources and the peoples of the Americas, um, those ventures that they went on, venture, venture is an important word there, those adventures that they went on were literally business arrangements and business propositions that they were engaged in in coming to this. Because the thing is, like, oftentimes, especially in, like, the teaching of American history, it's often described as, like, oh, there were these, like, religious refugees who couldn't practice their religion in England, which is kind of BS, and then they came to the Americas where they couldn't make a life for themselves. That's part of it. But a lot of it was actually essentially like the landed gentry who wanted to reestablish family fortunes that were flagging. And so they came to the Americas in an attempt to do that. And so that is actually what, especially in the 16th and 17th centuries, the term adventure means. Like we even still use venture to like talk about business propositions to this day. So are you so, telling me that an adventure is really just an advertisement venture? <laughs> in so a it sense, is just a, a giant marketing scheme. But, that, you but, know, we have our meme of Bilbo Baggins going on an adventure. And the whole point of that was just so that he could get a ton of gold and then come back and sit on his butt. Okay, but that's the sort of the high level perspective. But if you think about it from the individual perspective, so one if you were one of these people who is then going to go to, you know, literally the other side of the world to a place that you did not know, you did not understand, like there's strange people who live there who aren't going to like you. Um, that is very much like the sort of the adventure of like, you know, the individual character in, say, an RPG. You go into these strange lands, you meet strange people, often you fight them. And you fight them for resources <laughs> that you use to like build, you know, get better gear, et cetera, et cetera, or to do quests and so forth and so forth. Like that is actually the situation that a lot of these early settler colonialists found themselves in. You know, it's just that when we try to make games around this concept, we usually try to depict the the adventurer as the good guy, or at least not the bad guy. <laughs> Whereas in the case of settler colonialism, usually they were they were the baddies. They were the bad guy. And I think yeah. this is what gets me really excited when we talk about these topics is because this is actually learning for me as well. Um, 
because now I'm like reevaluating. Like when we look at Western video games that are all about this adventure narrative, like that is our unconscious cultural bias coming into like a colonialist narrative. And I say this because you're always the outsider, right? You're always from somewhere else. And the argument that we can make in these games, right, that are more narratively focused with a pre-scripted adventure. And so say Dragon Age, right, for example, is a more pre-scripted adventure, that when you choose your origin story, that is incredibly important because you are either propagating, right, what could be considered a colonialist narrative, or you could be propagating maybe a post-colonialist narrative if you came from a settled area. If you're a Dalish, right, in the new Dragon Age Inquisition, you're actually propagating something that you have been subjugated, and now you're rising to to a position of power. Well, now you have incredible storytelling just from the fact that you realized and recognized that a lot of an adventure comes from a colonialist settler narrative. And the conflicts that result. And the conflicts that result from that. Yeah. So with all of that, right, that background and that history, <laughs> this is like the definitions part of yeah. our essay here. This is very important, right? So yeah, yeah, that's that's the context. That's sort of the, the pre-reading that you would need to do because one, one of the things that we fundamentally want to think about adventures from a sort of like a gameplay perspective is then an adventure means then fundamentally that the pattern of behavior or the pattern of actions that you will likely engage in has been largely prefigured for you. So if you think like on a basic mechanical level about a game like Dragon Age or a game like uh, even just the Assassin's Creed games, then the what the game presents you is a sort of like there is a degree of openness there, but it, it is also not really railroading you, but it's sort of like pushing you into in a particular direction and that could be figured in terms of a story as it often is in game as it definitely is in a game like dragon age um or it can be figured simply in just in terms of like you know the mechanics of a platforming game like when you play a platformer the level is predetermined and it is your sort of job as the adventurer like moving through that space to navigate the predetermined zone in which your avatar is operating. Whereas this this other thing that we want to talk about, which we see as fundamental to sort of the concept of emergent gameplay, is really about sort of like not making that prefigured or like minimizing the prefiguration as much as possible. Right. And that's why the word, I'm going to call this a word, but it's really an acronym. That's why when you ever consider RPGs, yeah. immediately if you're from the gaming community, and I mean you have played games, that is it, full stop, <laughs> um, you already are thinking, I know what an RPG is. A role-playing game has a subset of actions that have been prescribed to you based on the nature and the history right, of role-playing games. Yeah. And you actually see this a lot when even just children on the playground play house or one of the children becomes the leader. Everyone establishes these roles, right, in child's play. If you have the leader, you're going to have the right-hand man or that one person that's the kiss-up, right? You're yeah. going to have someone that's not the kiss-up but who the leader obviously trusts more because they're not a kiss-up or, yeah. or um, someone who wants to get on the leader's good side all the time by always saying yes, a yes person, if you will. Yeah. And that's just for definitions because I do recognize a lot of you um, that do listen to this. English isn't your first language. And I realized I use a lot of idioms <laughs> lately. So I just yeah. wanted to to clarify that. Um, so you have that in that structure of, of children. And I, I like to 
bring that up because when I did a lot of my research back in the day as an academic, they would always, a lot of research about games and games theory and video games always goes back to playground and kindergartners. Yeah. Um, and I know that sounds really strange, but it's just true because they're wanna, wanting to show you that there is a fundamental human aspect yeah. of just, and it's universal in, in every country, this was globally studied, that all children, right, create all of these roles for themselves. Yeah. And, but mechanically, right, when you get to now creating a simulation of the environment in which you grew up, yeah, we are looking at an RPG now as something that can be twisted or molded or redefined from a video game standpoint. Yeah. So how do we actually do that as game developers is kind of chaotic. We have no idea, <laughs> right? So now Nicholas and I, knowing we have no idea, can only point to an example, right, that has actually done this. And like yeah. Nicholas was foreshadowing, it's not about the kind of adventure side or the personal journey or action of it, but it's from the management side. And how do you yeah. manage your personal journey versus just how do you feel taking the personal journey? Yeah, it occurred to us that in our in our previous free episode, a lot of the examples that we were giving were strategy games, were a particular genre. And so then the question emerged, well, okay, is it possible to take sort of the lesson that you can learn from strategy games and apply it to something like a role-playing game? And there actually is a game that 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 did this, in fact. I mean, I don't know if it was the first. In fact, it probably wasn't the first. But there's a game out right now that you can you can go get on, on Itch. In fact, you can play it for free on Itch right now. It's a browser game. And it's called Backpack Hero. So, da, last da, time da, had, da. <laughs> so last time we had Loop Hero. And what's interesting is that in both cases, like, so Loop Hero is all about sort of like manipulating the loop, the gameplay loop that your little dude goes through. And in this game, it's it's a, it does what it says in the tin. You are a hero who manipulates your backpack. And that's pretty much it. And what's interesting about this is that like Loop Hero, it too is has kind of auto-battler auto aspects to it. Because you don't, Re I mean, you do sort of control combat, but you control c combat through how you have items arranged in your backpack and by how you like activate those items over, you know, the course of like whatever encounter that you happen to be on. And what's interesting about this is that this game isn't just really fun and really cool and has a really awesome mouse character that I love. I love the I love the design of the character <laughs> of your avatar. The fact that this game is free always blows my mind because I constantly am, am paying for games and I'm also constantly looking for deals on games and I get that. But some of the most innovative, inspiring games that make me realize that I too am a hypocrite when it comes to inventory management as a systems designer, <laughs> I'm like, you were free. It was free for me <laughs> to realize that I was a hypocrite. Thank so, you. Yeah. <laughs> so what's interesting is that this game actually took something that it's kind of always been there in a lot of other games. If you think about like, you know, Diablo games and Diablo-like games like, you know, Path of Exile and so forth, like inventory management is a thing, but it's not a thing. It's not a meaningful thing. It's right. there. So yeah. yeah. No, I was going to say, and so I hate it. Like, I hate inventory management in games. But when it comes to actually managing my inventory as a human being, I love hacking. <laughs> oh, oh God. my gosh. Yeah, I am that person that people are like, man, I'm about moving. Like, I need help hacking. And I'm like, I will be there. I'll bring pizza. I'll bring coffee. I won't even eat the pizza. I'll just pack. Because I love, like, oh. organizing and making things fit into a Tetra-shaped area, which like, yeah. I live in 400 square feet. 
So yeah. obviously, my it's a little more than that. I'm I'm being a little short on my myself here. Yeah, it's still pretty small. But it's still pretty small. Yeah. And like I just got new hangers so that I could fit more stuff in my closet because my hangers were too wide by like two <laughs> centimeters. Okay. I, I'm that person. Now, when it comes to video games though, obviously I don't want to right translate my life experience that will make might bring me joy into a yeah. game. But backpack hero, I was like, oh, wait a second. Managing my inventory, right, creates <laughs> this joy that allows me to see this beautiful character. And then I was like, I am a hypocrite. I <laughs> I hate it in Resident Evil, right? Yeah. I hate size-based inventory. I didn't yeah. like it in Dead Space. And here I am playing Backpack Hero. So it's worth noting. Okay, so for those of you who have not played it and want a little information about the game. So the game does have procedural levels. It is It has roguelike aspects to it. Um. But the thing is, like within those pr- procedurally generated levels, um, you like movement around is pretty easy. Like you don't really navigate them. It, it, there's no like 3D space that you move through. Like you literally, cl- w- this is interesting. You navigate the dungeon by clicking on points on the map, and so like the map then mimics the function of sort of the backpack as well so like the backpack is then what works on the micro scale like when you're actually engaged in encounters when you have to fight slimes or rat or wolf dudes or whatever like you manipulate what's going on in your backpack but then when you're moving through the world you manipulate the map and the thing is there's a nice synergy there because not only do the two resemble each other in the interface but also they have a kind of natural relationship too because you're then manipulating your inventory and manipulating a thing in in your inventory like it all makes sense there is and i'm going to use the word there is ludo narrative harmony between those things <sighs> Lauren is very happy. We're doing heavy dance. <laughs> well, heavy dance. But, no, but, there but, is. But, yeah, I think sorry. it has to be that. I was going to say. I think that is that synergy. And let's kind of break down, though. For me, my question is, you know, why is yeah. is why and how does that synergy exist? Yeah. And then how did? Because when we talked about this, we wanted to kind of show how it. It's it's not that it didn't take away action from the player. No. Right. It's that it wasn't focused on putting that action at the adventure level. Right. What meant you are creating the character. And I think for me, that's why I don't like the inventory management side, because the focus and all of the action and attention that the developers have put to right is to how I'm engaging with the world. Yeah. But now this is completely separated from that. So when you were playing this, right, how did how did that relationship form? How did it finally get you to use the term? Ludo narrative harmony after Black. our many years together. Vomit. Big vomit. Um, <laughs> for those I also hate academic terms and I don't yeah. use them in my workplace because, I mean, I'm, I'm in AAA. If I said that word, they'd be like, mm, Lauren. For those of you who have not listened to the way, way back of the, the Furidashi adventure in podcasting, um, you are probably not aware of the fact that we were actually deeply critical of the concept of Ludo narrative harmony for a whole host of reasons that you can listen to, and I will link to you them to you in the show notes. Um, but when it comes to playing this game and why I was so... Well, for those longtime listeners will know, I like management-style games. I like the, the strategy games. And so then I also like RPGs as well. And so then to find a role-playing game in which it's sort of like understood not... In other words, it didn't try to like make a strategy game that was a role-playing game. There are actually a lot of those in existence. What it did is it learned the lesson of strategy games. It understood what the deep thing that is appealing about strategy games was, 
and then actually used what was already there in RPGs to model that. That is what is so interesting about Backpack Hero and obviously then the cool, you know, aesthetics as well. So the reason why it's so cool to me then the map represents that is because, again, the, the map, the, the, the thing that you use to sort of figure out where the hell you're going in literally all RPGs, it too was a thing that was always already there. But the map in those games tends to either just be sort of like a navigational tool or, you know, just like if it's like, I don't know, you know, when you see the world and you need to sort of like quick travel from one place to another, it tends to have fairly limited functionality in the game. Whereas in this case, not only is functional like really fundamental functionality is being given both to the backpack and to the map. So these things that were there in RPGs that were in many ways being underutilized and then learning the lesson from Real, from strategy games with their emphasis on sort of like the preparation aspect of those those gameplay loops and applying that lesson to things that were already there. The reason why I love Backpack Hero so much is because it shows that someone thought about that. Like a thought was had, analysis was done, a thought was had, and that thought was applied to gameplay. And it created a really great game. Full stop. Yeah, I, uh, well, I can't end the episode <laughs> yeah, we there, can't end the episode I mean, there. I, no, I, yeah, this is 20 minutes. Thanks. Bye. Uh, no, I actually wanted to, I wanted to touch on that as well, because for me, it always comes out of like the student games where people are forced to think about yeah. things. They're forced to analyze something and it could be as, as fun or as and chaotic as Quake. You could be forced to analyze Quake, right? And I, I bring that game up because it's really old, but it's like a first person shooter. People you know, in general, in like the first person shooter community, right, are on constantly analyzing Quake, but it was too fun, right? We never, we haven't seen Rocket Jump really in a game in like, since, no, it's, it's it, been around, but since It didn't like, really make its way outside of Quake. It though. didn't, because yeah. it was too fun to the prescripted adventure of a development cycle, right? And I don't disunderstand that, but the reason why I say it was, it was too fun is that it was easily exploitable. Right. It was an action that was easily exploited and it was a primary action. I am going yeah. here with, with this. Right. No, I understand. And it, yeah. And I think that if you've ever played a first person shooter and you go, man, this is really exploited. This weapon is like too, like too powerful. It's too overpowered. Right. They nerf it. Right. Yeah. Now we have this concept within the gaming community and within the development community that like the players that are going to play your game are going to exploit your game, are going to find these systems that they can exploit. Right. Yeah. Very easily. And that the consensus is we will turn them down to better balance something to create an even playing field. Right. Yeah. Now, this can happen whether it's a PVE or a PVP or, or even an adventure game. Right. An MMO. Right. It, it can be anything. Yeah. And it's because the primary systems of engagement for that player are about the personal actions and interactions they have on the world around them. Yeah. And it's like situated to the avatar. That's why it's such a big deal. Because when yeah. I press square, I am punching you in the face. It could be like Street Fighter, right? So there we go. But what's really interesting about Backpack Hero is it takes something that in a typical AAA budget, quad A budget, even <laughs> if you will, right? In this huge world space, that's a tertiary system. When you're developing an MMO, uh, an online RPG, 
um, in any game that has travel in it or traversal, traversals are secondary, right? To yeah. whatever your core mechanic is, right? Yeah. And fast travel, maps, map design, even procedural maps can take a huge third of the budget and would still be considered less important than, say, swinging your sword, right? Yeah. Because the swinging the sword is called second to second. So it takes something that is a tertiary system, maps, is a tertiary system, inventory, and a lot of other games, and says, what if I removed everything else and made it a primary system? Yeah. And for me, you're going, well, if it's a primary system, well, now it is a little more strategic, right? But I actually don't, I'm not sure if strategy is the right word. I do think there is strategy involved, but yeah. it's almost even more tactical, right? And because they realize that it's not just about what's in your inventory, it's also about what's in the environment. They've actually yeah. created that synergy for you to go, even if I mess up in one environment, I can kind of correct or afford it in the second, right? Yeah. I've messed up in my backpack. I don't have everything I need. Um, now the map is going to change so that it kind of works for what I need, but I should be better prepared and have a better strategy next run, right? Yeah. Well, and it also takes what in like, you know, your massive mainstream games is often used as a limiting factor because the thing is like inventory systems in your Diablos or your MMOs, um, they tend to just be an arbitrary restriction. But the arbitrary, but the restriction here actually becomes an affordance because the thing is, it's not it is a restriction because it still has that aspect. Like it is, there is a limited space that you have. And over the course of leveling up your, your character, you can increase the size of the backpack, but you can increase it strategically because you actually get to choose which blocks to open up. And the reason why no, that's def important. Define reason, it yeah. affordance really quickly. Okay. So an affordance is something that it's essentially, it's like what we were talking about in the previous free episode about like tools. It is something that like opens up an opportunity for you. In other words, it has defined parameters. So like a good, a good idea. Okay. A way of thinking about an affordance is like thinking about any tool. So like if you have a screwdriver, a screwdriver, like if you could have a flat headed screwdriver or a Phillips head screwdriver or like star headed or whatever, like, so there, there are limitations there. You can only use it in particular ways, but what it allows you to do is it allows you to manipulate mechanically these things called screws that you cannot do with your bare hand. And so right, the, the affordance <laughs> allows you to do that, but within the context of a particular limitation. So the backpack then becomes the same thing. It is now permitting you to do certain things through its limitations. Whereas in the case of sort of like your typical game design, it's merely a limitation. It's just stopping you from doing things. Whereas in this case, it is stopping you, but through the stopping is also facilitating other forms of behavior. And that behavior can take the form of like, you know, adjacency bonuses between particular items as you arrange them in your backpack. And it can also take the form of like, you know, literally then like your resource pool is right there in front of your face at the entire, you know, the entire time. And so whereas like, you know, if you're going into a dungeon in an MMO, you generally want to be like as loaded up with like all of the contingency stuff that you could possibly have potions, you know, buffs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas in this instance, it's actually trying to get you to think more conscientiously and as lauren said tactically about those things and also because you have to activate them in combat it's, it's interesting because now what is typically thought of as just being in the preparation phase is also like functioning in both preparation and the action phase it's sort of like occupied both 
Yeah, I think that's where the Ludo narrative harmony comes into play is that it yeah. has taken something that was, uh, I was going to say preparatory, but I don't yeah. know if that's a word, and made it an activity, made it part of the activation phase. So it's yeah. not just something that you're going to forget about. It has to be something that is constantly in your face, right? It yeah. is constantly valuable. And almost running out of space can become like a detriment. Now, yeah. even though something where normally you would have gone, yes, now I have a backpack free slot, is now, oh, I have a free slot. Did <laughs> I do something wrong? Right? Because yeah. that affordance isn't just the opportunity or the tool. It's the thought, right? It's the ability to recognize that with a flathead screwdriver, you can't really screw in, right? If it's, it's, it's for a Phillips screw head, like you could maybe, but in it's not the best maybe, tool yeah. in the situation, right? Yep. And you know what to do with the screwdriver. And assuming someone's taught you, maybe a hammer is like an easier example. You know what to do with a hammer, right? Yeah. And a hammer is dual functioning, pull out, right, push in. But yeah. it's not the best tool for scenario, right? Now, this is the Rapunzel thing too, where like the frying pan is a weapon. And that's why <laughs> that makes that scene funny because you're going, wow, wait, that is not its intended use. But that is emergent narrative. I can now use it as a weapon. I know everybody yeah. wants a cast a hammer iron frying a, a hammer is a weapon too, yeah. A hammer is a weapon too, right? And yeah. so I think that that's where I get excited is because I really love increasing choice yeah. from limited options. Yeah, exactly. And usually that's not what a backpack is. It's just limiting your options. And then by the time you upgraded it, you just have everything in your backpack. So you have every option, right? Like you don't have to be strategic or tactical yeah. about it. Because your focus is somewhere else in those games. But here they really show you that even if you just focused on the backpack, you didn't, you wouldn't have to create like a 4X backpack game. You could create an action adventure. Yeah. Right? Well, and just and, and have the backpack. In many ways, yeah. No, that, that that's precisely it. Because what Backpack Hero seems to understand, maybe explicitly, maybe implicitly, is that you, by taking control of the preparation phase, you're also taking control of what I earlier referred to as like the prefiguration of the adventure. In other words, that thing that is like partially determined for you in sort of like the the nar narrative broadly understood of an adventure game now is actually more in your hands than it typically is quite literally because it's in your inventory <laughs> um and so then as a result like you don't actually have to discard all of the trappings of an adventure game you only have to discard the ones that stand in the way of that prefix uh, that the sort of like predetermine things for you in other words if you hand over the determination to the player as well you can still have an adventure game that integrates those like prefigurative aspects, like sorry, the the sort of the strategic slash tactical. Yeah, I know you're trying to define it right now, yeah. so like I can see you struggling with your hand gestures, but yeah. like you're really <laughs> no no no, it really is about like that. You can have an adventure, and it doesn't have to be fighting monsters mm -hmm. and leveling up and getting better gear and items and draining people of their resources. Yeah, like it can actually just be about having items available to you. And making the best right use of those items and the items obviously that you find yeah right and i think that's what makes me excited because if we're going to loop this whole back thing into where the word adventure comes from a lot of people romanticize what an adventure is right yeah. in fantasy why wouldn't we i mean 
I mean, I, I would love to go like suffer and then fight a dragon and somehow live and survive and have a hoard of gold to get me out of 400 square foot apartment into maybe a 600 <laughs> square foot apartment, right? That's all you could afford with a hoard of gold in San Francisco, 600 square feet, right? So who, who doesn't want that? But what I think is interesting is that you don't have to have that fantastical adventure yeah, and have to subscribe to that colonialist thought. You can actually have an incredible adventure without that and still maybe get a hoard of gold at the end for your 600 square feet yeah and so if if unless you have anything else to say lauren i think i actually have a good way to wrap this up so no please please wrap this up and then just cut the part where we talk about wrapping it up no i'm gonna leave it in no (laughs) what i always always leave it in i i like for our listeners to have that like sort of brief inkling into like how we interact with each other all right a little behind the scenes preview for the rest of you please subscribe (laughs) to our patreon where you get this even more that's true you'll have to pay for like the full behind the scenes thing um anyway (laughs) so you were saying earlier about how like you know referring to the way in like children essentially like learn how to play through taking on particular roles but the thing is those role they don't invent those roles out of whole cloth they come up with those roles by observing the reality around them and then transposing them into the games that they play with each other similarly we have done um i guess you could say we've done a similar thing in that broadly speaking in the the games industry we have accepted a particular idea of what adventures and gameplay narratives are supposed to be and we are reproducing them but what lauren and i want you all to do is to actually critically examine those things that you have received those roles that like literally a game puts you into at the start and think to yourself like well well, what is the holdover? What is the baggage that comes along with this? Because if you start to sort of like chip away at it and sort of like remove particular aspects and like enhance others, what you end up with is a game like Backpack Hero, where you can do fundamentally new things, even with existing tropes. And that's the point that I wanted to end on. And I thank you all for listening to this free episode. Um, You can follow Lauren and myself on Twitter. Lauren is at the Lauren Ash. I am at Academicality. Um, the podcast account is um, at Furidashi Pod. We also have a Patreon where you can get an additional bonus, two bonus episodes every month. They generally go more in depth into like the topics that we discuss in the free episodes. So if you want more of this and also if you want more behind the scenes stuff, you can join us there. But until next time, um, have a great week. Mm-hmm.